0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Yeah, it's not typically our habit to look at three different passages. Uh, Typically we stay with just one passage. Things are a little different here this morning, but uh, go ahead and turn back to that Ephesians passage. I heard a lot of pages turning there. Maybe you didn't... uh, get there in time, so we will make sure you get to look at these passages in some detail. We're going to begin with Ephesians 4. Uh, Before we get into this, just a couple of things. We do have a membership class coming up here at New Life on December 27 and 28. Um, If you're interested in membership here, that's the first step to take, but if you just want to know more about what the church is about, it can be considered a kind of inquirer's class, so... Uh, consider it useful for that. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning class. Uh, again, December 27, 28. If you're interested, you can sign up in the breeze Way. And uh, also, something we announced last week, we're offering a Christianity Explored class. Now, this is a class specifically geared to people who are not Christians. Or people who are very young in their faith and still kind of exploring what Christianity is all about. And on September 19th, we're going to be starting a seven-week Christianity Explored class. I do have some cards here. Uh, with information on the class. So if you're interested, come to me. I'll give you one of these cards. If you know somebody who you think would be interested in this, maybe you're talking to somebody about the gospel, someone you've been trying to win for Christ for a long time, uh, I would highly recommend this class. You can go online to learn more, ChristianityExplored.org, or come to me and take one of these cards, hand it out to somebody and invite them to come. Uh, We do need to get a count on that as well, though, so we need people to sign up, and as usual, that's uh, in the breezeway. uh, Christianity Explored. Well, this morning we are beginning, no, we're continuing actually a sermon series on the core values of our church, as you see on the screen. We started this last week, and we're taking five Sundays to examine what it is we we value here at the church, what we try to excel at. And last week we began with worship, uh, or what we call adoration So that's our first core value. So if you've been coming to New Life for a while and you wonder, why do we do worship like we do it here? I mean, we do do things a little differently than the way some churches do it. We have a a liturgy and a plan for how we do worship, confession, assurance, these kinds of things. That sermon last week was intended to address that. What is the purpose of worship? What are some principles that we follow in worship and how do we practice worship? So if you want to know more about that and weren't here last week, I would recommend you go to the website. And uh, listen to that. But today, we're starting with our second core value, which we call belonging. And by belonging, we just simply mean the effort that we put forth here to build relationships with each other, um, to find friendships, to connect with one another, uh, to fight the loneliness that we all deal with to to try not to fall into that kind of apathetic cool detachment from people that's just so easy to do in this day and age as we can all retreat into our rooms with our iPhones and iPads and computers and just get lost by ourselves uh, a lot of studies are indicating that loneliness is an issue for a lot of people today i remember the first time i really felt lonely it was in college um, i was um, a resident at Studebaker Complex Palmer Hall i went to ball state and the first year my freshman year there it was wonderful because there were just so many guys on the floor that i knew and there were always people around and i remember coming back late at night 11 or 11:30 and there was, there was always people up and i remember ordering the domino's pizza and bringing it out in the hallway and everybody coming out and eating the pizza and just hanging out until two a.m. And it was great. There was wonderful community in that dormitory. Well, my sophomore year, (coughs) decided to uh, move off campus. And I had two roommates and moved on to a house on on Jackson. And one of the roommates was an architecture student, so I never saw him. (laughs) And the other roommate had a girlfriend, so I never saw him. And just suddenly, I went from the dormitory to living in a house basically all by myself. And I remember it was the first time I felt really lonely. It was the first time when I really felt the need to to connect with other people. And some of you might be dealing with that. Well, here at New Life, we we value community. Um, It's important to us to try to foster community. Now, as we go through these core value sermons, sometimes I get a little bit concerned because... It can seem like with each core value we talk about, it just becomes another thing you gotta do. You know, so last Sunday it was worship, the importance of worship, and you probably all left. Okay, I gotta go to worship now, I gotta make that a higher priority. And now today you're gonna tell me I have to be in a life group, I can see it coming, another thing I gotta do. Well, with community, I wanna suggest that it's a little different than just another thing you gotta do. So, by way of illustration, imagine a person who is passionate and very interested in oceanography. Okay? This person is very interested in, in marine life, you know, just very interested in everything that goes on underwater. This person has a fascination with jellyfish and stingray and coral reef. You know? And this person wants to go and be close to these things and see these things. This person wants to ride dolphins. This person wants to uh, know to, how to scuba dive and explore the bottom of the ocean. But there's one problem. Person doesn't want to get in the water. Now that's a problem, isn't it? For somebody interested in oceanography like this, getting in the water is not just one more thing to do, it's the one thing you have to do to experience all the other things. And community is a little bit like that. If you want to experience growth in your faith, you want to grow into maturity. You want to see people coming to faith in Jesus? You you want to persevere to the end? It's important to you that Christianity and your profession of faith is not just flash-in-the-pan thing, but something that you hang on to for the duration of your life. I want to suggest that you've got to swim in the waters of Christian community. And that's what we're talking about this morning. These three passages that were read to you have to do with each of those things. Discipleship, evangelism, and... Perseverance. So let's just, just take a look at these things one at a time. Again, we're in Ephesians 4 here, verses 11 and 12. Uh, let's think about how discipleship happens through community. So let me read this to you again. Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12, Paul says <clears throat> that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, glue your eyes here to this passage. What, what is Paul's main goal here? What does he have in mind? If you look at verse end of verse 12, it's the building up of the body. Verse 13, it's attaining to the unity of the faith. Uh, It's uh, growing in our knowledge of the Son of God, of Jesus. It's pursuing mature manhood. It's just a reference to growing up in the faith, reaching a state of maturity. So that's discipleship. That's what Paul is talking about, growing in our relationship with Jesus. Now, how does Paul say that's going to happen? You look back in verse 11, he gives people, he gifts people to uh, employ certain ministries. He gives pastors and elders, it says at the end of verse 11. Well, what do pastors and, excuse me, pastors and teachers, what do pastors and teachers do? Is Paul here saying that the way for you to be discipled is that a pastor will come and meet with you every week and disciple you? Is that what he's saying, that this is the way to be disciple? that everybody in the church will have a one-to-one personal intimate relationship with the pastor? Uh, Thankfully, that's not what he's saying. That would be impossible uh, for any pastor. Um, Is he saying, um, just come to church and hear a sermon and then you can go home and you don't have to have anything to do with Christians for the rest of the week. Get one sermon in you every week and you're good to go and you can grow as a disciple. Is that what Paul is saying? I don't think so. What is he saying God gave pastors and teachers to do? Well, it's in verse 12. It's to equip the saints. That's all of you, friends, who believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Isn't that wonderful to know that? If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're a sinner, yeah, but you're also a saint. And there's a tension there, but that's what the Bible says. You're a saint and a sinner. So when he says saints, he's not talking about some you know, upper echelon elite Christian. It's anyone who believes in Jesus. Well, here's what pastors and teachers do. They equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's one of my jobs and the elders here is to equip you so that all of you can do ministry to one another. So that you can grow into mature manhood through the ministry that you offer to each other. That's the way God has designed it for Christians to grow. Here's what John Stott says about this very famous commentator, about this very passage. He says, this is incontrovertible evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, pastors, bishops, popes, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. Colossians 3 talks about this very clearly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it says. You know, that word you is not singular, it's plural. He's talking about the community of the church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, new life, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's part of your responsibility to teach one another. Teaching doesn't just come from the pastor. It comes from each of you to one another. Admonishment doesn't come just from your elders. It should come from you to one another. Because the way God has designed it for you to grow as a Christian is for you to be in community and be in connection with people and to allow people to speak into your life. Because here's the truth, friends. You will become like the people you hang out with. That's just the way it is. I mean... Think about it. I think about being in high school. And I don't know if high school students use these terms anymore, but we well, there's a group of people in our high school and we called them the jocks. And the jocks were the guys on the football team and the basketball team, and they got all the girls. They were all, you know, popular and everybody loved them. And you know what? I noticed that the jocks, they all talked the same and acted the same and dressed the same. Pretty much. I mean, there were some exceptions, but pretty much. And there was another group in high school. We called them the freaks. And I didn't come up with these terms, but the freaks were the group that was, you know, long hair, smoking all the time, cigarettes and marijuana, listening to heavy metal music. You know, they were the freaks, always wearing coats and clodhopper boots and that kind of thing. They were the freaks. But you know what about the freaks? They all acted the same and talk the same, and dress the same. Because they were in these little mini communities where they were with people that they liked and respected and valued, and so whether they knew it or not, they just ended up becoming like the people they hung out with. And that's just the way it works, friends. I don't know if you realize it, but you right now are being profoundly shaped by the community in which you are most fully and completely immersed. You're being shaped. The way you think and the way you talk and the way you act and the way you dress has everything to do with the people you respect and love and have been hanging out with. And so if you want to grow into maturity, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then you've got to hang around with other disciples of Jesus. You've got to hang around with people who are growing, people you respect, people who love the word and love the gospel and love holiness. You need to be around them because as you are around them, you will become like them. So it's very important for community to take place in our lives so that we can grow as disciples. Well, um, there's another purpose of community, and that's Evangelism, let's turn back to John 17, The Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is a Jesus' high priestly prayer. that's what it's known as. And here is Jesus offering up this prayer to the Father on behalf of His disciples. And I'll read here verses 20 to 23. Jesus, in prayer, says to the Father, I do not ask that these only, referring to the disciples, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, That they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, evangelism is something also that takes place through community. Now, what is evangelism? Just to be sure we understand that. Evangelism is not just living a good life and hoping somebody asks you who your Savior is. Uh, evangelism is a little more than that evangelism is telling a message to somebody it's saying to somebody uh, you need a savior and God has been gracious to send a savior in Jesus and Jesus has died on a cross and risen from the dead and if you believe in him you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life you got to tell people that that's that's evangelism you got to call people to believe that But but now here's another question. How do you convince people that what you're saying is actually true? How do you convince people that God did send his son to die on a cross? How do you get people to believe that? Now, theologically speaking, we know that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can convert somebody and bring a person to faith. But that doesn't negate your role and my role in proclaiming the gospel. We're called to do that. So... Uh, what could we do? Well, we could try to prove the resurrection of Jesus, prove that Jesus is alive. That would be worthwhile. That would be a good thing to do. Uh, We could try to prove the reliability of the Bible so that people would know that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. That would be good, too. Uh, We could resort to the cosmological or ontological or teleological arguments for the existence of God, if you want to get philosophical about it. And there would be an appropriate place for that as well. But Is that what Jesus is saying here in John 17? There's an appropriate place for all of those things that I've just mentioned. But look what Jesus is saying. It's just remarkable in this little passage. He he says, as people see the oneness and the unity of the community of faith, as they see the unity in the church in verse 21, look what it says. When they see that they are all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He repeats it again in verse 23. As people see that I am in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that there's unity in the church, so that the world may know that you sent me. What he's saying is that there is a very powerful apologetic at work in the way a Christian community functions. And that when the world looks and sees what's happening in the church, if they see unity, if they see something different going on in the community, that that is going to prove to them that the Father sent Jesus to die for sins. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, we wouldn't really think of it that way, would we? But that's what he's saying. He's saying. That evangelism is a community project. I mean, we are just so individualistic, aren't we, in in America in particular. And if you don't think you're individualistic, let me just ask you this. How many times when you read the Bible do you ask yourself, what does this say to my church? Or what does this say to the community of faith to which I belong? How often do you ask that question? The question you ask is, what does this say to me? And that's appropriate. That's good. You should ask, what does the Bible say to me? How often have you asked, what does this say to us? I mean, probably not very often. And if that hasn't occurred to you very often, it just shows the individualistic waters in which we all swim. But the Bible is a very community-oriented book. You know, Jesus didn't just die to save a bunch of isolated individuals. He laid down his life for the sheep. He gave his life for the church. We've been baptized into a body. It's a community project. Jesus is redeeming a community. He is creating in the church an alternate society, a counter-cultural community. That's what we are as a church. A countercultural community. There ought to be values that are held and lived out and executed in this church that the world can look at and say, you know what, there's something going on there. There's something that rings true with me about what happens in that place. Look what it says in Deuteronomy. Here's Moses. He's saying to the people of Israel, he says, look, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. God's rules, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, obey God. God. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. The nations surrounding Israel, he's saying, are going to look and see what's happening. Who, when they hear of all these statutes and the way you're living, they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So how are people in Yorktown going to come to faith in Jesus? How are they going to know that the Father sent Jesus to die for sins? A big part of that is going to be connected to what they see happen in this congregation and other congregations we're not the only one here i'm not saying that but we're part of it they're going to look and see what's happening there are are, are there values there that are different than what i find in the world cuz life in the world sure seems pretty hopeless let me sh- share with you some examples countercultural values What are the kind of countercultural values we ought to have in the church? Well, let's look at money, for instance. In the church, it's the way it should be, we're not stingy with our money. It isn't our number one primary goal in life to get rich and retire comfortably. That's not our number one goal. We share our resources. When we make our budgets, we plan our budgets, not just with us in mind, but with the community in mind. The deacons have been talking a lot about this um, offering that they've been passing in order to meet the needs of somebody in our congregation. That, that's something that Christian churches ought to do so that there's nobody in our midst who has a need. That's what it says in Acts 4. That's the way the early church operated. They made sure that everybody was taken care of. In the world, people are just, you know, they're, they're just out for number one, and they're just going to make as much money as they can, and they will do anything to get there. But that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. How about with race? I mean, the world struggles all the time with race relations. I mean, I don't need to make the case for that. In the church, this ought to be a place where we're not afraid of people who look different than us and talk different than us and don't speak our language and dress different. That shouldn't be something that causes us to turn away in fear. This should be a place where all races are united in the oneness that they have in Jesus. This should be the place where racism is overcome as a countercultural example to the rest of the world that can't seem to figure that out. How about with sex and romance? This should be a place where we do not value promiscuity. This should be a place where men and women, when they date, they commit themselves to remain pure until they get married. They are not going to have sex until they're married. How about that for a countercultural value? And when they look for spouses, they don't think only, oh, you know, how can I find the most beautiful person? How can I find the person who's going to increase my earning potential eventually? How can I find the person who's going to increase my social standing? I mean, it's not that those are illegitimate concerns, those are appropriate, but they shouldn't be the primary concern. For a Christian, what you're concerned about is finding a Christian, someone who loves Jesus, someone who's going to help you grow in maturity and integrity and character. That's a countercultural value. How about with politics? In the church, we don't allow politics to be divisive. We hold our political opinions strongly, and we're able to defend what we believe, and we can talk about it, And debate about it, but we don't allow our hearts to grow cold to one another when we disagree because our primary devotion and allegiance is to Jesus, not our political cause. That's a countercultural value. When you're talking on Facebook, you don't say things that you're going to have to apologize for later when you get into a political debate. It doesn't mean you don't have the opinions, it doesn't mean you don't know what you believe but conservatives and liberals should be able to coexist in the church by submitting their ultimate devotion to Christ. You, when the world looks and sees a church operating in this way, in a way contrary to the way the world operates, they're going to take notice, and they're going to listen when you tell them about Jesus. Leslie Newbigin, missiologist, says this, How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Well, let's go on to the last point. How does community enable us to persevere? For this, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. Perseverance through community. By perseverance, I mean persevering until the end, that is, remaining a Christian uh, your entire life. Well, let me just read these verses to you. Hebrews 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, this passage is addressing a fairly thorny topic called apostasy. Uh, In verse 12 here, he talks about those who um, fall away from the living. God. Now there's a lot of different interpretations of what that exactly means. I don't believe this means that it's possible for a person to lose salvation. I don't believe that's possible. I don't believe it's possible for a true Christian, a born-again Christian, to lose salvation. There's just too many other passages that call that conclusion into question. And look at 1 Corinthians 1.8 sometime. It talks about uh, the faithfulness of Jesus to sustain you to the end John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me, I will lose none of them. I'm going to secure the salvation of all of them. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says that he who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus comes again. So I don't think that the writer here in Hebrews 3 is talking about people losing their salvation. I think what he's talking about is the situation that probably all of you have seen at some point where there's a person who claims to be a Christian at one time and then repudiates that claim later so this person is falling away from a profession of faith maybe they were baptized in the church they came before and confessed faith in Jesus but for whatever reason they're not Christians anymore they don't want to have anything to do with it well that brings up a question how do we know who are the true Christians and who aren't In any congregation. I mean, if this is a possibility that people will eventually repudiate their profession of faith, how do we tell the difference? How do we know who's the real deal and who's not? Well, he says that in verse 14. Really, the only way to know is to see who holds their original confidence firm to the end, because if a person does that, then we can know that they share in Christ, now, this is not saying that you have to persevere to earn your salvation. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that it will be revealed who is a sincere and true Christian on the last day when we see who perseveres. But it's all of grace. God is the one who enables you to persevere, God is the one who gives you the power, God's the one who fills you with the Spirit, God's the one who makes you believe in the gospel, God's the one who gives you promises in the scripture, and God is also the one who does something else to help you persevere. And we see it in verse 13, sandwich right in between. Verse 12 talks about falling away. Verse 14 says you can know you're a Christian if you are sustained to the end. And then in between the two is verse 13. How does this happen? When we exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what he's saying? This is one of the means by which God enables you to persevere, is that he sends people into your life to exhort you and encourage you and affirm you. And I'm not saying if you don't, I'm not, I'm not saying if you're not in a life group, you're going to apostatize. <laughs> but I am saying if you don't have other Christians in your life on a regular basis, you're going to make it really hard to persevere in the end. You're making it <clears throat> hard on yourself. Uh, you need <coughs> people who can come to you and ask you questions. You need people who can say, "How is your prayer life? How is your? What's going on in your heart right now? Are you in the Word at all? Do you have any time in the Scriptures? What's God teaching you in the Scriptures? What are you What are you doing late at night on the computer when everybody else is in bed? How are you getting along with your husband? How are you getting along with your wife? You need someone who has the guts to ask you those questions. And you also need someone who is you know, not always pointing out everything you're doing wrong, but you need someone who is filled with the gospel and who will say, Oh, yeah, and by the way, don't forget, you have been justified through faith alone, and that God has pronounced you not guilty before his law, and that the righteousness of Jesus is yours through faith, that God is faithful to all of His promises. He is able to present you faultless before His throne, and He who has called you is faithful, and He will do it. We need to hear that from one another. That's one of the ways, that's one of the means by which we will persevere till the end. But see, here's something that's, that's not going to happen. Those kinds of questions and those kinds of challenges are very unlikely to be asked here on Sunday mornings. As we come in gather for worship, go home, or go to Sunday school, and then go home, and it's just messy and chaotic, and it just doesn't happen very often that those kinds of conversations take place. And so, that's why we think it's important to offer what we call life groups. Sometimes churches call them community groups or small groups, fellowship groups, we call them life groups. And this is the primary way that we seek to establish community, to foster those kinds of relationships um, with one another. Kurt mentioned a little bit about how they operate. <coughs> These groups meet weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, sometimes in homes, sometimes here at the church. A general format is we look at some questions from the previous Sunday's sermon, and the leader reads those questions, and we just have some discussion about it. So there's no homework. You don't have to take a book home. You don't have to answer any questions. Your only homework is come to church on Sunday mornings and hear the sermon so that you're able to contribute to the discussion. Uh, Everyone's invited. You don't have to be a member of the church to participate. You don't have to be a Presbyterian to participate. You don't have to even be a believer to participate. College students, you're welcome too. I know your lives are busy, but you're, you're welcome to attend our life group. So let me conclude with just three short little uh, applications regarding our life groups. The first one is this, allow time. And by that I mean when you or if you decide to join a life group, uh, don't make a quick judgment on the group after just one meeting. Uh, Don't be discouraged if you find that after one meeting you're not walking out with your new best friend. (laughs) In fact, don't be discouraged if you haven't found your new best friend after ten meetings. Because it takes a while for life groups to connect. It takes a while for people to open up and be transparent. It takes a while for relationships to develop. Give your life group time. And I want to say uh, something specifically to the introverts among us. And um, I'm not beating up on the introverts because I consider myself to be an introvert. So I know what that's like to think, oh, I've got to go to this meeting when I'd just much rather stay here and read this book. Uh, that's, that's the introvert. Wants to be home, doesn't want to be with people. But let me challenge you, introverts, don't allow your introversion to be an excuse not to get involved in the Christian community. It's not a pass for you, it's not a pass for me. Let me say this to the extroverts among you. Don't consider it your responsibility to bring the introverts out of their shell. (laughs) Let the introverts come and be quiet. Don't think there's something wrong if they don't say anything. Introverts are internal processors. They're observing. They're thinking about things. An introvert might be having a wonderful time in your group and never say anything the whole night. They're probably not going to come as much as everybody else because they need more downtime. So don't hold that against them. Um, give them freedom. Uh, but introverts, don't, don't allow that to be an excuse for you to not get involved. A second thing, invite others. Invite others into your group. Be on the lookout. Keep your eye out for people that you can invite into your group. You know, I hear quite often that this church, that New Life, is a, is a friendly and inviting place. I've heard that many times, that people feel like they're welcomed, and people uh, feel like they can find community and get involved and get connected pretty well here. And I'm grateful for that, and I believe that that's true. And I commend you as a congregation for that, because I know that's not true in, in every church. But let me offer this warning. Uh, don't then conclude from that, okay, that means I don't have to be on the lookout for new people because this is a warm and friendly place and I know somebody else is inviting the new people. (laughs) I happen to know that not everybody finds new life to be a friendly, warm, and inviting place. It hasn't been everybody's experience. So be on the lookout for the person who is just standing there by himself or herself out in the foyer and reach out to those people. And invite them to your life groups. Uh, Beware of that tendency to allow your life group to be this, you know, defending your turf thing where you have these good relationships and you don't want it spoiled, so you don't want anybody else in it. No, we're not, that's not the way we think about life groups. Keep them open and look for people that you can bring in. And that includes, that includes unbelievers. That includes people who don't go to the church. That includes your neighbors and work associates. If you don't want to invite them to church, maybe a happy medium is inviting them to a life group. Just let them get in and see the way Christian community works on the ground level. And then lastly, I suggest this. Pray. Pray. And and here's who I'm talking to primarily right now. Those of you who have already decided that you're not doing this. (laughs) Those of you who have already come to the conclusion, I'm too busy. I don't have enough time. I'm too shy. I'm not going to do it. Look, we're not even going to ask you to sign up for groups today. I know that's what you thought I was going to say. The sign-up sheets are in the breezeway, as we say all the time. Um, We don't have any sheets for you to sign up for a life group today. We're not asking you to do that. What I'm asking you to do is pray. This week, just ask God to reveal to you, to show you whether it would be time uh, for you to join a life group. Because we value community. And we need it to grow. We need it to evangelize and we needed to persevere.